I have a very low tolerance level for stupid bullshit. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. All righty then. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. I'm Gamer Dude. This is Story Time. Glad you found me again. How you doing? Yes, we do have more stories. I've got a lifetime full of them. Today's stories are about games, not video games. A lot of you know me from video games and from the Twitch stream, and we'll be talking about video games and other stories, but this story time is all about board games and the games that I grew up with. And yes, yeah, most of you can tell just from looking at me, if you've seen me on Twitch, I do predate a lot of the video games. I've been around for a while. I've played a lot of games in my life. I grew up loving games. That was our entertainment. As I've said many times in the stream and as I've said in other episodes of the podcast, um, we had radio and TV and playing outside. The fourth thing we had was playing in the basement. Mom would always send us down to the basement. You kids, get out of my hair. Go down to the basement and play a game. And we did all kinds of things in the basement with various toys and accoutrements that we had down there. Everything from dad's bin of tools that he didn't sort but didn't know what to do with, to the train set, to the cowboys and Indians, to whatever we could dress up in and play with and spread out and entertain ourselves with. Because there wasn't anything like a video game or a console or a handheld. We had... It's about a level up from dirt and rocks compared to what we have today. Now, back for us, this was sophisticated stuff. I had a Lionel train set, which my dad had picked up at an auction. Now, these days, people collect Lionel trains, and they are the be-all and end-all. And you have these magnificent displays and these engines and these cabooses and these freight cars, and they set them up and they just treasure them. Back when I was a kid, we would set up that train track on the basement floor. And uh, we'd have our little toy cowboy and Indians. Yes, we were very politically incorrect. We actually played cowboys and Indians. And they would sell the little plastic figures. You could, you could get a bag of cowboys and you could get a bag of Indians and set up these epic battles wherever you wanted to. So, of course, we set them up on the Lionel train track. And uh, we mastered the ability of running over various cowboys and or Indians with the trains. That's how we amused ourselves. That was just one of many things. But that's, that's the stuff that we played with. The things that we played with were the actual board games when we weren't playing with our figures or our trains or sticks and stones outside. And those stories are for another podcast episode. But the board games that I want to talk about are the original games that you think about when you think about board games. Monopoly is the first one that springs to everybody's mind. When you think about a vintage board game, Monopoly is the one that everybody comes to. And everybody seems to hate Monopoly. We loved Monopoly. We played Monopoly like it was going out of style when I was a kid. And we played a lot of Monopoly. And I'll get to our Monopoly games and some of the other games that we played. But I, I wanted to talk to you about why games were so big. And, and I, alluded to it, I alluded to it at the beginning when I said there's no video games. And I don't mean to come across as the guy who's, oh, back in my day, except... That's kind of what story time is about. It's, ah, oh, back in my day, 
We didn't have no video games. We didn't have arcades. We made do with sticks and stones and pieces of string. It wasn't quite that bad, but we didn't have video games or arcades or consoles or handhelds. What we had were cards and we had board games. That's what we learned to play with to entertain our, to entertain ourselves when we were kids. The first game that I remember learning was a card game. We would play Go Fish with my great aunt Freedy. Uh, Frida was her name, but we always called her Freedy because it was easier for us to say. And Freedy was not a good winner and she was not a good loser. She didn't want to lose Go Fish to the little kids. And when she won, boy, did we hear about it. Wow, you kids don't know how to play. It was like, okay, <laughs> great. You beat a five-year-old playing Go Fish. Good for you, Freedy. Yay. But that's how we learned to become good winners. My mom always told us, don't act like your aunt when you win. Act like you were supposed to win, but be polite, be gracious in defeat, be gracious in victory. And that's how we learned how to behave, playing games like Go Fish with my great aunt Freedy. So that was the first game that I learned to play. And Go Fish, in case you guys don't know, it's a very basic game, but Aunt Freedy took it very seriously. We never played Old Maid. That's another game. Uh, but that was beyond our five-year-old abilities to comprehend. But we did play Go Fish because it's easy. Get four fours. Good. You got a book. Okay. Next. Five fives. Five fives. Four fives. Another book. Good. Whoever had the most books, that was the end of it. But that's what we played as the earliest game that I remember. Then somehow along the line, I discovered board games. And board games were fascinating to me for a number of reasons. Number one, there were so many different permutations of games. There was Monopoly. There was Stratego. There was Trouble. There was Parcheesi. And they were all different. And I loved them because there were different ways to win and different rule sets. And I was always interested in the rules and how do you do this and how do you make this happen and how can you win this and what happens if I do that and what's the penalty if I do that I was a rule book reader and whenever we got a new game everybody would just hand it to me and say gamer dude read the book tell us how to play and that was my job and boy I would devour that book and I'd learn every nuance I'd learn how to do this I'd learn how to do that for instance the monopoly rule book if you read it and I did Many, many times, the rules specifically dictate how many houses and how many hotels you're supposed to have in the game. There are only 32 houses and 12 hotels in a Monopoly game. You can't add more. You can't pretend, okay, we'll use this token as a house. Once you used up all 32 houses, there were no more houses to be bought. So one of the strategies in Monopoly... I know I've thought about this way too much, right? But one of the strategies in Monopoly was to get as many houses as you could and control the house market. Thus the name of Monopoly. You had a monopoly on the houses. If you had enough properties where you could eat up a lot of the houses, you could prevent other people from buying houses. Now, not everybody read the rule book like I did, but I learned the rules and this is how we taught Monopoly to everybody in our little clique of friends who would play Monopoly. And we learned, oh, 32 houses, 12 hotels, okay. And that's how you could prevent yourself from getting wiped out if you controlled the housing market. I know, right? I spent a lot of time reading rule books and learning nuances of games. 
But we played these games because there was nothing else to do. Now, again, these are the classic board games. We didn't have things like Catan. When I talk about card games, we're talking like a deck of 52 playing cards. We didn't have Magic. We didn't have Yu-Gi-Oh. We didn't have any of the games that are out there now that are probably variations of various card games, but expanded to the nth degree. We had four suits and 13 cards in each suit, and those are the games that we played. If you've ever heard of the Hoyle uh, Book of Rules, Hoyle wrote all of the rules. I should rephrase that. I don't know if he wrote them, but he collected all of the rules for all of the card games. And there was a book that was about an inch thick with rules for every card game imaginable. And I read a lot of rules for a lot of card games because you get tired of playing Go Fish after a while. So then you'd learn Gin Rummy. Then you'd learn 500 Rummy. Then Canasta came into the mix. Canasta was a game that I mastered one year because my mother and I played a lot of Canasta. She was always looking for somebody to play cards with, and my dad was not a game player, and my mom liked games, and I loved games, so we would sit down and play Canasta, two-person Canasta, because she loved it, I loved it, and that's how I learned how to play Canasta. And we play Canasta to this day. I taught Mrs. Game Dude how to play Canasta, and she likes it, so we do play Canasta. It's a great card game. You don't hear a lot of people playing Canasta these days, but it's a very old, but a very good, interesting, strategic game. And that's one of the reasons that I liked it, and that's one of the reasons that we played it. We would play with our little group of friends. Now imagine this. Take yourself back in time. You have a bunch of 10-year-olds sitting around a card table in the basement at Gamer Dude Manor, and we are playing Canasta. How's that for a picture? Three 10-year-olds with Canasta hands trying to make Canastas and beat the crap out of each other by points. It, it, it's quite an image if you think about it. You don't see three 10-year-olds playing Canasta these days, that's for sure. So we played card games, we played board games. And the board games that, that I talk about today are the ones that you see on the shelves at Toys R Us in the vintage board game collection or classic board games. For us, these were new things. We had, I mean, Parcheesi is an old, old game, but they always repackage it every year. And this is the game where you have to have your tokens uh, starting from your little start point. You have to roll the dice and get them out onto the board and then work your way around the board to the center home space. And yes, I remember all of the rules because we played these games so obsessively. All of the strategies are still stuck in my head. I have plenty of room for strategies from games that I haven't played in a long time. Uh, and they just stay there. And I take up brain space for these these rules that I haven't used in ages. But as soon as I bring out a Parcheesi board, oh yeah, everything locks back in. So Parcheesi was one. Sorry was another one. Sorry was very much like Parcheesi. If you've ever seen the game Sorry and you look at a Parcheesi board, they're virtually the same game, same strategies, a couple of little nuances with Sorry where you can slide down several spots if you land on a certain square on the board. Um, but other than that, Sorry and Parcheesi are virtually the same game. Then, I remember when they introduced the game Trouble. Trouble is very much like Sorry and Parcheesi. But the big selling point on the game Trouble is they had the Pop-O-Matic. Ooh, that sounds impressive. What is a Pop-O-Matic? A Pop-O-Matic is a little... It's a, it's a half-circle globe in the middle of the board. I'm trying to find the best way to describe it. It's made of plastic, and it's set on a thin piece of metal that if you push down on the globe, it makes the metal pop. And on top of the metal is a, a die. And when you click the half globe, the die pops 
and that's your roll. So instead of having loose die, you would pop down on the pop-o-matic and it would automatically roll the die for you. And then that would be your role for getting your pieces out onto the board and around the board to the home space. And again, trouble is like sorry and parcheesi in that it's just moving tokens around the outer edge of a board to get to the home space. But the selling point was the pop-o-matic. And when we first got our first trouble game, which we got secondhand at an auction, um, the Pop-O-Matic was the selling point on that game. We loved the Pop-O-Matic. And we would just hit the Pop-O-Matic because we liked the sound it made. It was one of those click sounds that was unique that you'd never heard in another game. It was really cool for us when we were 10 years old. Look at the Pop-O-Matic go. Yeah, simple things entertained us back in the day. So we had the Pop-O-Matic, and that's, how we loved, that's why we loved playing Trouble. Then, of course, there was Yahtzee. This was one of the first games that we played that had nothing to do with moving tokens around a board. Yahtzee is a game that involves five dice and a cup. And you would put, I'm sorry, it's six dice because you would get five in a row. See, I, I almost forgot, but it's six dice. If I remember correctly, I'm, I'm screwing that up. I haven't looked at the rules in forever. Maybe it's only five dice. Oh, I don't remember because I haven't played Yahtzee in forever. But whether it's five or six dice, you would put the dice in the cup, shake the cup up, pour the dice out, and then you had a scorecard where you had to determine how many of two of a kind or three of a kind or five of a kind or a straight that you had from the dice. And then you had two extra rolls to try to get whatever you were shooting for, whether it was five of a kind or one, two, three, four as a straight. That's what Yahtzee was about. And it was an annoying game for my father because he didn't like noise. And there's nothing more quiet than five or six dice in a cup and three 10-year-olds rattling the cup. So we had Yahtzee. We had Trouble. We had Parcheesi. Then we went to the, I call it the big five. We had five games that were our go-to board games. Monopoly was always top of the heap. And if you haven't played Monopoly and you haven't played it by the rules, it's actually not a difficult game if you read the rule book. And it doesn't take forever if you play it the way you're supposed to play it. Now, granted, it can get annoying as your friends bankrupt you into oblivion. But if you're the person doing the bankrupting, it's a lot of fun. So we had a lot of fun playing Monopoly. One of the other games was Risk. Now, there are a lot of variations of Risk these days. There's a Star Wars Risk. There's a Star Trek Risk. There's all kinds of Risk variations. But we played the classic Risk game, which was a world conquest game. And you could have four people play the game. And you had these little plastic pieces that denoted the armies that you had. And you would all start in a different area of the map. The object was to increase your armies and work them across the map and take over the world using dice rolls in battles with the other people you were playing the game with. So it was that was a long game. It was a process. There were strategies involved. And there were certain places that you would want to be on the map, like Australia was always a good spot because it was defensible. You had one way in and one way out. And I do remember this because I would always either pick Australia or South America as a starting point if I could because those were the most defensible places. And yes, we learned the strategies of board games. And we would have these tilted battles that would go on for hours of trying to stack up our armies and take our friends out, or they would be trying to take us out. And if you didn't get your starting spot, then you had to come up with a new strategy. Okay, how am I going to defend Europe? I've got somebody in Australia beaten on my south side. I've got somebody in Europe beaten on my west side. What am I going to do? 
And these are the things that you would think about and you would plan these strategies in order to defend yourself properly in a good game of risk. We also had a game called Billionaire. Now, Billionaire came out, I want to say in the 70s sometime. Billionaire was an answer to Monopoly. It was like an expansion of Monopoly. Very similar objectives, except it wasn't a property conquest game. It wasn't a purchase this street, purchase that street. What you purchased were companies. The selling point on Billionaire, aside from the fact that you were dealing with billions of dollars, was they had this little double spinner. It was made out of plastic, and it it had two uh, plastic, um, I want to call them sticks, but they're not really sticks. If you can imagine a piece of plastic that's about an inch wide and four inches long, and in the middle of that piece of plastic was a little hinge that was on a spinner. There were two of these next to each other on a little stand, and you would spin them and they would spin together. On each end of these sticks was a different color, red on one end, green on the other, and you would spin them together. And of course, they didn't spin the same way. One would spin faster than the other. The result of these spins, it would be red, red, green, 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 red, or red, green. The result of the spin would determine a lot of battles for these properties, and you would do battle using this spinner with your friends who you're playing the game with. And again, the object was to either beg, borrow, or steal properties from the bank or from your friends. And the spinner was the way you could steal properties from your friends. So we loved anything that had extra parts because Monopoly, when it comes right down to it, you have a token that you move around the board and you have the property cards. There's nothing exciting about that. You throw the dice and you get to be the dog. I mean, those are the most important things about Monopoly. With Billionaire, you had this cool spinner. If, if, if you landed on the right square, you had the chance to spin the spinner and maybe steal your friend's property and reach your goal of a billion dollars. So we played a lot of Billionaire in those days. And again, the spinner was the selling point. The Popomatic on Trouble, the spinner on Billionaire, anything that was just a little different, that really captured our attention back then. So we loved the spinner on Billionaire. The next one was a game called Money Card. Now, you've probably never heard of it, and for the life of me, I don't remember where we got the game Money Card, but boy, we played the crap out of Money Card. Money Card was a travel-around-the-world game that was put out by the American Express Company. How do I know it was put out by the American Express Company? Because the card that you used to charge things was an American Express card. You didn't have MasterCard. You didn't have Visa. There was a little cardboard replica of an American Express card. And part of the game was getting control of the money card. So if you had the money card, you could charge things and take these trips, buy these things. And the object was to collect keys from every city throughout Europe and Asia. And I'm trying to remember, I haven't played it in years. I think you could also collect keys from the Americas as well. So there was a giant map and your tokens were little plastic airplanes. So you would fly around the world charging money on your or charging items on your American Express card and hoping to have enough money to pay it off. It was really capitalism in a board game is really what it was. More so than Monopoly, more so than Billionaire. The societal commentary that existed in the game Money Card is really quite telling when you think about it because the object of the game was to travel around, charge things up, and win the game, never worrying about the consequences of the bill as long as you were able to get everything that you needed to satisfy the requirements for victory. So Money Card drew our attention for quite a while. The other game that we played a lot of was Stratego. Now, Stratego is a two-player game. Stratego 
was a unique game because it had spies that could move any way they wanted. Up, well, I shouldn't say anyway, because you could never go diagonally in Stratego. You could only go north and south or east and west on the board. You couldn't go diagonally southeast to northwest. The, those diagonal moves were always banned in games. But you could have a spy who could all of a sudden move nine squares and be on the other side of the board and try to capture the other guy's flag. Then they had artillery and they had miners, and they had generals and majors. And so there were strategies to each of the different pieces that you had. And the other thing that you could do was lay bombs around your flag to prevent your friend from taking your flag. It's a strategy game in that you had to set up your pieces at the beginning of the game. There was a strategy to setting up your flag because the board was divided up into little squares and you had... I'm trying to remember, it was four rows and 16. There was probably 50 or 60 pieces to this game for each side. And some of them were the players, like a major, a general, a minor, a spy. Some of them were bombs, and one of them was a flag. So you would try to protect your flag with the bombs. But the minor, I'm trying to remember if it was a minor or an engineer. I always called him a minor, but it might have been an engineer. It was the number eight piece. That much I remember. The number eight could take the other team's bomb. So if you surrounded your flags with nothing but bombs and the other guy didn't have enough defense in place to take out your miner slash engineer, he would just go through, take out all the bombs and capture the flag. So you had to create a layered defense. You'd have to lay several bombs around the flag and then a layer of defenders and then another layer of bombs. And this is how we learn strategy, how to protect my flag from my friend by layering my defense, put the right pieces in place, and then hope that I can get through his defense because he's also doing the same thing. He's protecting his flag with his bombs. So you'd have to work your engineer across the map. You'd have to work your general across the map. And then some of the strategy included, can I get my general, which is the number one piece, across the board to take out their, their flag? There was some honor to it amongst our group if you could get the flag with the number one piece. That's one of the things that we strove for. I want to capture the flag with my general. But whoever captured the flag, it didn't matter which piece it was. As long as you captured the flag, you were doing all right. You won the game. So Stratego, we spent a lot of time on because there was a lot of times there was only two of us around to play a game. And Stratego is the perfect two-player game. So we had Stratego for two people. We had all of the other games that I talked about for three people. And when we played these games, we would spend hours doing it. Just like we spend hours now playing Overwatch or Star Wars Battlefront or whatever video game we're playing. Or if we're playing Angry Birds or Bejeweled or whatever game we're playing on our phone. Those are the hours that we spent playing the board games or the card games because that was our entertainment. And that was some of the best times that we had because when you're sitting around and sharing the experience of gaming together, you're bonding in a certain way. You're talking, you're strategizing, you're getting to know each other. And we got to know each other playing these games the same way we get to know each other playing video games, except we were doing it across from each other at a card table. It was a lot of fun. We spent a lot of time doing it and I just enjoyed the heck out of it. And that's where my love of games really started, playing these board games with my friends from an early age. Now, we went on to all other kinds of games. I have probably 50 or 60 board games in storage on the various shelves here at Gamer Dude Manor. 
It's not a manor. I just call it that. Um, <laughs> we have a condo. What can I tell you? But we have them in storage, and they, they have all variety of games you could imagine. Go to the Head of the Class was an old vintage game that we played. We have all of the, the board game versions of the TV shows. We have The Price is Right. We have The Family Feud. We have some old TV shows you may not have even heard of. Do you remember The Hollywood Squares? We have the home version of that. Do you remember? The, this is an old game you've probably never heard of as well from an old game show called I Guess. Do you remember I Guess? You may not, but I have the home version of the I Guess game. Password. Do you remember Password. The password is serendipity. We have the home version of Password. And actually, we still play Password at the holidays. When we get the family together, we divide up into teams and we play Password. There's something about a board game that brings people together. It gives you the opportunity to chat and hang out and just kind of put your feet up and relax and have fun. At the same time, get your competitive juices flowing. It's, it's one of the things that I love most about get-togethers is when you're playing a board game. We still play the board games at the holidays. We love playing the board games. Uh, and there are so many. I, you know, Pictionary is technically a board game. Taboo is technically a board game, even though there's not really a board. But these are the kind of games that have evolved from the early board games that we played when I was a kid. Uh, it's a different kind of dynamic than you get when you're playing with your friends online. It's different than, uh, you know, a game of Overwatch or a game of uh, Battlefront 2. But board games have a place, and I've always loved them. That's where my love of gaming started, and that's where my love of gaming continues to reside, both in the board games and extended into the electronic universe. So that's going to be it for today's episode. I appreciate you hanging out and giving it a listen. And if you ever need to play uh, Parcheesi, you know where to go. Thanks, guys. I truly appreciate you taking the time to be here. We'll do another episode next time. Until then, you all take care of yourselves, and I'll see you when I see you.